1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the latest news coming out of China through our daily access newsletter, our website at supchina.com, our app, and of course, our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, The field of China studies, whether in academia, in think tank land, in government, in business, or even among the unaffiliated feral China watchers, has a diversity problem. Let's, Let's be honest about this. Women remain badly underrepresented, whether on conference panels, as quoted specialists in media, and alas even on certain podcasts, Uh, but if women are badly underrepresented, the situation is even worse for black specialists in China-related fields. While we've got some fantastic black journalists working in China, or we had in recent years, people like Marsha Cook from CBS, Howard French with the New York Times, Keith Richburg from the Washington Post, it's still pretty rare to find black people in many other China-related fields, and even in journalism, they are still underrepresented by a huge amount. Well, today we have here on the program three guests who have all worked to try to correct the problem of Black underrepresentation. Keisha Brown is an historian of modern China who is assistant professor in the Department of History, Political Science, Geography, and Africana Studies at Tennessee State University. She's a part of a fantastic public intellectuals program pip or pip under the national committee on u.s china relations and among her areas of study is a subject she calls sino black relations you may have heard her on our sister show new voices where she was interviewed by cindy gao and i encourage you all to check out that episode keisha welcome to seneca
3: Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me today.
1: Oh, you're very, very welcome. Uh, we are also joined by Mark Akpanyinye, who is a researcher focusing on China's Belt and Road Initiative, on Chinese investment abroad, and China-Africa relations. He was at CSIS for a number of years and previously lived in China as a fellow with Teach for China and a lecturer at Baoshan University. Mark lives in D.C., but he's riding out quarantine or lockdown or whatever this is in his home state of Georgia. Mark Ackmaninier, welcome to Seneca.
0: I'm really grateful to be here with you, Kaiser. Thanks for having me on.
1: Great to have you here. Uh, And finally, in his second turn on Seneca in very recent uh, weeks, we have Leland Lazarus, who listeners will remember from our conversation with Jeremy and me about uh, China in the Caribbean. Uh, Leland is a foreign service officer who's stationed in Barbuda. And after uh, that's after multiple postings with state in, in D.C. and in China, in Beijing, and in the Shenyang consulate. If you haven't already, please check out our fascinating conversation with him. Leland Lazarus, welcome back to Seneca. And a quick note to say that, Leland, you're speaking in your private capacity and not representing the State Department here, right?
2: Correct. Correct. And thanks so much, Kaiser. It's a pleasure to be back on.
1: All right. Well, great to see you again. Uh, lots to talk about today, but I want to focus first on some of the organizations that you're all involved in. Uh, two things in particular. First, the Black China Caucus and one of its key initiatives, which is a list of Black China specialists that just launched very recently. Keisha and Mark, I know that you're both involved in this uh, and have been from the beginning. Can you talk about the genesis of the idea? And I was wondering, did it take some inspiration from the excellent list of a female uh, China specialists of women, China specialists that uh, New Voices member uh, Joanna Chu initially launched some
0: years ago. You're very happy to um, explain the genesis. Um, to answer your uh, question, yes, it definitely was informed by New Voices. Um, the success of New Voices to have amplified, um, you know, five hundred women is what we wanted and hope to do for with the Black China Caucus. Um, we founded the Black China Caucus because we recognize the need to increase and amplify Black engagement in China related spaces. Um, we already know that there's a growing awareness of this need to ensure diversity. But to be honest, there hasn't really been much work devoted to a thorough investigation on this topic. Um, you know, people keep talking about the need for, you know, Black voices, but we wanted to be able to come at it in a way that, um, was informed uh, by the experiences that we know of people in the in the in, a, in the in the space, as well as some of our own anecdotal experiences. Um, so we want to understand what some of the challenges that hinder full black participation and advancement in this space, and we also want to understand how widespread some of these challenges might be. And that's why we decided to found the Black China Caucus. We want to be able to better understand. What are some of the commonalities and experiences and what is the full scope of black representation. And so we hope that we can use this knowledge to propose durable solutions to overcome some of these challenges. And that's, what we're, that's where the directory comes from. Um, you mentioned it earlier and the point of the directory is so that we can identify uh, these professionals that are engaged in work related to China and the survey is going to create this directory that enables us to have a better sense of who's out there, a better sense of the community, and what resources we can be able to provide them to enhance and amplify their professions and their careers.
1: Excellent. Akisha. how many people have raised their hands so far and gotten themselves onto the list or had their information submitted to the list to date?
3: Uh, thanks for the question. So based on the results so far, the um, directory went out about a month ago, mm-hmm. um, and so far we had about 70 people from diverse backgrounds, so um, about 70 from across the spectrum. Um, some of the kind of insights so far with that, about um, 15 have their doctorate, so 15 like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, some have about four or five who are doctoral candidates, and then you have others from a variety of backgrounds, not just academia, but other kind of research, maybe some of the more non-traditional paths, maybe doing some work that is related but not within academic spaces, as well as in journalism, government as well. And so you have it from across the spectrum um, in terms of those who identify, who self-identify as black, that's one of the parts of it, how you identify yourself. And then also what work you're doing and how you see yourself as um, part of this particular field in this particular community.
1: Keisha, how does it break down between people who are Africans and people who are, say, uh, Africans in diaspora, whether you know African-American or, or, uh, or from, from other geographies?
3: And so that's kind of the next step of looking at some of the analysis. So I think right now we're focusing on the numbers in terms of who's uh, coming. And with the number of 70, there's still some more work to be done. Sure. I think a good place to kind of get some um, breakdown of who's identifying what way would be also to maybe compare it to um, the one that Corey Cooper has um, put together through Greater Black Voices on China, where there's also a directory maybe not as large in numbers. It's kind of one that she's put together herself um, based on people that she knows and work with. But that's another space to kind of maybe I break down Get those differences, but that'll be the next step and kind of the analysis to see um, what is the representation and the self identity and part of that.
1: Hey, so I'm not I'm not familiar with that. Can you repeat again? Who who is she? And, and-
3: um, so it's Corey Cooper. She is a third year um, law student at Columbia, and she um, created a space called Greater uh, Black Voices on China. She's on Twitter, and so she's been doing some work as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh.
3: Yeah. Um, and so she and I actually did a recent um, conversation. We did the Young China Watchers. Um, we did one on um, black internationalism in China and so she was a moderator so I was kind of the one speaking and she moderated so she's doing some really interesting work as well
1: yeah oh that's that's wonderful I'm really glad to hear it so so mark back to you are are there areas of China studies other major fields of study or, or or areas of expertise or focus that you still have really big gaps in with the 70 people so far uh, i I ask this mainly because I, I'm wondering maybe I'm sure a lot of our our listeners out there. We'll have names that they're going to want to kick up and uh, people that are going on because uh, I'm sure that there's, they've got to be whole. So they've got to be, you know, more than 70 disciplines of China studies anyway. So what's the big gap right now?
0: That's an excellent uh, question, Kaiser. Um, sort of what uh, regarding what Keisha said earlier, um, we do have um, a large number of respondents that have identified themselves to be in academia or, or research related fields. And I think that's natural, uh, um, considering that my background is, uh, through research at a think tank. And then, um, you know, Keisha is a professor, um, focusing on Snowblock, um, relations. The gaps that we've largely identified through the 70 respondents we have so far, um, we're not, we don't have as many people that are focusing on religious studies. Um, Ah. we, um, have a few people that are in business. Um, but we would definitely love to encourage people from the business community and from the financial services community to um, also interact and and fill a survey. We don't have many people that are in the arts or the entertainment or the sports uh, industry, which is uh, something that we would love to consider understanding the appetite um, that China has for entertainment and sports, and a lot of uh, people are in that industry and some other industries that I was shocked that we didn't have as a representation in is the tourism, travel, hospitality industry. Um, huh. I don't think we have anybody currently that's signed up that is self-identified. Um, and we're also trying to diversify by increasing our representation in tech and trade. So we have a great um, list so far. You know, As Keisha said, we've launched it less than a month ago, and we have 70 people that have filled out the survey, but we definitely want to encourage more people if they self-identify as black and they have expertise or knowledge or any engagement with China, you know these are the people that we're looking for to fill out the survey.
1: So one last question before I turn to Leland and ask him about another organization called Nobia. But uh, I wanted to ask the two of you first, uh, because you worked so closely on, on this list with PCC, how badly underrepresented are black people in China-related fields? I mean, is it worse in China studies than in, say, uh, other areas of social science or in other area studies, uh, is is it particularly pronounced when it comes to China?
0: Yeah, um, that's an excellent question, and uh, the reason why I'm uh, you can't really see me, but I'm smiling uh, for this question. Well, oh, I can see you. <laughs> is because we currently don't um, understand the scope of this underrepresentation. Um, We largely know that black people are largely underrepresented in China studies or professions requiring the expertise of China, but we would love to actually know the hard statistics and the data points. Um, This is a question that we're asked so many times and a question that we've devoted time and time to really understanding, but that's part of the problem, and that's why we decided to found the Black China Caucus. Our first emphasis is actually going to be undergoing a research component. Um, Because we don't always have the numbers and we want to know how people choose to self identify um, so that we can get some of these statistics and that we can understand what are the causes of this underrepresentation? Where in the pipeline, you know, can we identify it? Is it institutional um, or are these individual challenges? So, one of the things that we're going to get started is employing an ethnographic research to examine the scope of Black Brisbane representation and participation in the China space, um, and really trying to provide this as a resource so that institutions and people that are allies in the space will be able to understand some of the factors that contribute to low numbers engage how they can be helpful in this.
1: Great, great, great. So, Leland, there's another organization called NABIA, National Association for Black Engagement with Asia. Now, this one isn't specifically China-focused. Uh, it's more broadly aimed at Asia. And while the Black China Caucus is more about professional development, NABIA is is different. Can, can you talk to us about what NABIA aims to do and, and your involvement in that organization?
2: Correct. And I want to say that actually Keisha, Mark, and I are all members of NABIA as well. Yeah, uh, I'm yeah. actually
1: but I haven't had you haven't had a chance to talk yet, so I wanted
2: to. Right. Ask you. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. And and uh not only that, but I'm one of the newest members of Nabia. So, uh I definitely don't want to be the chief spokesperson for the organization, but you're absolutely right, Kaiser. It's the National Association for Black Engagement in Asia, and it's creating a network of African Americans who are Asia experts, um not only in China studies, but also Japanese studies, Korean studies, um, Southeast Asia um, in order to encourage greater Black engagement in the Asia space. And similar to the Black China Caucus, it was created about a year and a half ago in response to the lack of Black Asia experts at the table uh, and the lack of Black Americans generally represented in US-Asia jobs and conferences and, and travel. Um, so just to give you some statistics, I mean, you know that African-Americans represent 13% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. But in 2017, they only represented 9.4% of you know, U.S. residents traveling overseas. And of those traveling overseas, only 2.3% uh, traveled in Asia. Wow. So it definitely shows a dearth of uh, black representation in the Asia space. Or, or rather, I would say, a lack of exposure. They are there, but there's just not the um, public representation of uh, black experts in this space. So they've created a, a Slack community where everyone is sort of, sort of sharing information. Uh, it's a professional database. So for um, think tanks who want to have more diverse voices uh, in the Asia space, they can use that professional database in order to uh, recruit people to be on their panels. Um, hopefully, TV stations can use it to uh, have uh, more diversity in terms of experts on their shows and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, those are exactly the sorts of you know uses to which I've been putting lists like the women's list and that I will be putting the BCC list. to. Uh, so tell us where we can find that, that database.
2: So right now, the website is just usnabia.org. That's us. Mm-hmm nabea.org. I believe that the database is still being gathered. Mark, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes,
0: um, the database is still being um, gathered, but Nabea intends to make the list public um, sometime at the end of August. And the great thing about um, the BCC working with Nabea is that the directory that we are building is going to go directly to Nabea as well to inform their greater Asia, Black Asia uh, professional database
1: that's great so by the end of this summer we're going to have way more resources that we can all tap uh so that we can all those of us who are putting on conferences as we do regularly those of us who are always looking for speakers people to quote in stories we can now have a place to go just like that women's list where we can you know make our our own uh you know, programming much more representative that's fantastic i'm i'm really glad to hear it just now you you've all hinted at some of the, the sorts of obstacles and challenges that that we're talking about the, the reasons why this underrepresentation is a problem to begin with and i want to turn my attention to that right now what is it about your experiences as up and coming china scholars or people who are working in the china field what what kinds of racism have you encountered personally in the classroom, everything from, you know, the really overt, uh, and, and hostile racism to the more insidious racism of, of low expectations. Maybe I'd like each of you in turn to share some of your stories, uh, to share your experiences, uh, as, you know, young black people in America with an interest in, in China, the obstacles that you faced, the factors, uh, that, that took you over those barriers and, you know, past those challenges. Keisha, let, let's start with you.
3: Okay. Um, Thank you for that question. I think... Uh, One thing that was mentioned earlier is the idea that, you know, we're trying to create or kind of, you know, amplify Black uh, China hands or Black China experts. And I think as a historian, historically speaking, there have always been Black China experts. There's been a whole history of them. It's just a matter of that recognition and understanding that being a China expert does not mean you have to be, um, look a certain way or have a certain representation. And I'm thinking about in grad school when I was a TA, I was a teaching assistant, and I had to teach for a class that was on kind of East Asian humanities. He's thinking about um, East Asia, kind of in this kind of comparative reign from like early uh, foundational origins to about the 6th century. So we're talking about Buddhism and we're talking about Shinto and all these kind of philosophies and ways of kind of early cultural uh, identity in East Asia. And what was interesting is that my first day, usually all the time on the, the, the scheduling, it says Brown. Well, Brown is a very generic last name. It doesn't say Keisha. It just says Brown. Uh-huh. And the first day I walk in, you know, the students are like, um, this is a class by East Asia, there's a black woman in front of me as my TA, <laughs> what's going on? And so you have students who legitimately look at you and like, do you know anything about East Asia? And I respond back to them in Chinese and I was like... Can you answer my question in Chinese? And they can't. I'm like, and here's why I'm here. But it had to be that idea of I had to justify my presence in those spaces, even as um, a TA in those classes where I was assigned to teach. The instructors wanted me in those classes. And yet the students did not understand that wow. to be an expert on East Asia, particularly in China, meant that you can have a black woman as your TA or instructor for the semester. And you get those questions the first day, like, um, this is going to be an interesting uphill battle. But that happens on on different levels um and it happens in different spaces and that was just an experience of uh, thinking about in grad school and also um and think about in the China side, when you go to places or different spaces, and you know you respond in Chinese, or you say something back, or you kind of laugh at a joke, and they get look at you like, oh, I, I forgot you spoke Chinese. Yes, I know <laughs> what you're saying. I can engage in those conversations as well. And so you have those moments where um, the idea is that you're, you're there, but they don't always in some ways recognize your authority in those spaces. And so for me, one of the ways I've tried to really kind of change that is to think about, in a lot of my recent work, is to you know how do we think about who is a China expert and how do we expand that beyond the idea and so kind of as you mentioned before with the the, the new voices they're kind of directory. you know we can bring women into this space but also we can bring people of color into this space who are doing this work and know that they can be experts on China as well. They're not new. We have people like, you know, Du Bois, who's done work, Robert Williams, who was useful and instrumental, people like Unita Blackwell, who've done the work to really further U.S.-China relations, but yet their achievements have not been really framed in the way of, of China spaces or thinking of them as China experts. And so I think once we start to shift that idea of who can be an expert on China, we'll start to see a greater understanding of uh, more, representation and more. And so inclusion, if you will, of a diversity of voices in those particular places.
1: Did you, I mean, say so you, you were in grad school at USC, but uh, yes. prior to that, you know, when you were, uh, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, you were the fighting Irish, you were at Notre Dame for, for yes, your year. Yes, University of Notre
3: Dame. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, but did you,
1: did you have role models? Were there people in the history department mm. uh, or especially, you know, working on East Asia who were black?
3: Um, I think for me, I had to, like my work is interdisciplinary. My my support system was also across the board. And so I think in undergrad, I was looking to some of my, my black professors. And while I love my alma mater, don't get me wrong, the representation in terms of black faculty was very small. Right. Like you had a handful. And so you knew who to go to, not just faculty, but a handful of staff. And so I had that support system um, and I was able to utilize that. And the same thing in grad school, I had to kind of piece together my own kind of community and cohort. So I had my my peers and my colleagues in my department, but I had to seek professors in other places um, to really help me build that particular particular network. So I had my advisor, my main mentor, Dr. Joshua Goldstein, who was really great, and then I had um, in grad school Dr. Francile Wilson, who mm-hmm. her job was to teach me um, in terms of black internationalism, but also how to navigate. Being a black woman in academia. So it was both a professional and a kind of a personal relationship. So for me, it was a matter of navigating and cobbling together people who could help me put these two different pieces because somehow my work and who I identified as were always, some ways, split because they didn't see people who looked like me in those spaces.
1: Yeah. Mark, let's move on to you. What, what about you? What's your experience uh, coming up? You went to Duke, right? <laughs> Just down the street, down the road. Yes.
0: I I um, am well familiar with Duke. Uh, Durham and Chapel Hill. Um, so yeah, I went to Duke, and it was after my um, undergraduate years I decided to um, move to China, and I ended up being um, living there for three years. And it was through those experiences and that time, really engaging with you know Chinese language and history, really solidified my interest. So that on my return to the US, I wanted to transform those experiences into a career. Um I think that's when I first hit that that wall um, of challenges that I wasn't um, anticipating. Uh, I think my initial enthusiasm for China was met with skepticism and disbelief, um particularly because I explained that my interest in you know China came from an avid interest in china Africa relations, and I had people encourage me to pursue um African studies, especially when they uh, found out that my heritage is Nigerian, and so I had to navigate, um, you know, people not really steering me in the right direction or um, really um, translating my enthusiasm to be um, genuine. But I was thankful to have colleagues and, and mentors um, and friends that were able to point me in the right direction and I eventually moved to DC and started to develop my career doing research in the China space. But I think what was really resonating with me from what your question was, is the, the, um, the phrase low expectation. Um, I think that was something that I had to navigate um, and um, deal with at many instances of my career. I've had people tell me that maybe research isn't for you or that this is maybe not the space for you Jeez, And to be honest, that really, um, I really internalized that because when you're a young person moving to DC, trying to start your career, um, you take a lot of stock in what people are telling you and you believe it. And, um, it took me a, wa- a long time to, uh, grapple and process that, that information. Um, but I had one of my mentors who is still one of my mentors today. And he told me, you know, you worked for Dr. Brzezinski, very instrumental and helping the U.S. reestablish relations with, you know, the PRC. Zbigniew who who's National Security Advisor under Carter, right? Yes. And that mentor said that um, if he believed in your in your skills and what's in your head and that you knew enough about China, then you don't need to believe anybody else that tells you anything different, um, differently. Um, so I think for me um, and the people that I know, Anecdotal experience experiences, there is um, a culture where we're not mentored, we're not seen as equal, um, and we have lower investment in our career opportunities. And I don't think that's necessarily um done maliciously, um, but what I've noticed is that um a lot of people who are you know in this space, they tend to gravitate towards people that either resemble them or remind them of themselves. Um, and they latch onto those people and they invest in their time, their energy to really mentor them, how to navigate some career opportunities. And as black analysts and as black scholars, we don't have that luxury. We don't always have someone that looks like us uh, that wants to invest in our career and invest in um, who we are as professionals. And so we're left to sort of navigate an environment where we have to, you know, just, Find them, whoever they are. So I think for me, um, it's having you know mentors like the one I had told me you know to keep pursuing this this industry, but also meeting new people like Keisha. You know, Keisha is my co-founder, but she's also a mentor because she's been able to also give me a lot of great (laughs) advice as well. And so that's um, some of the experiences that I personally um, have faced. But I just want to end on saying, not all of it has been negative. There's definitely been a lot of positive experiences, of course, but. Um, there is that challenge of navigating the space when, um, you don't see yourself reflected and people don't necessarily invest in the same ways that they do for other people. You know,
1: Mark, your experience might've been a little bit different from other people in that you were born to, you know, to immigrants from Nigeria. Uh, and you have this, maybe a hybridized experience of growing up African American, but also in the sort of same way that I can kind of channel the immigrant experience, even though I was born in the West because my parents were immigrants, uh, I'm sure that had something to do with it as well, is that you know, you, you can still identify to some extent uh with your immigrant Nigerian parents, your interest in China and Africa. Uh that that had to have been, you know, a factor. Can you talk a little bit about
0: that? Yes. Um I can definitely happy to talk about that. That um reality or that um sort of my identity really started to unravel when I was in China. Um, I think um uh my identity was always questioned. Um when you know, people would ask me innocuous questions of where I was from and my nationality. Um you know, I, I I would say, you know, immediately I'm I'm from the United States, I'm from Georgia. And um I always get the follow up questions. Well, um gosh, I've never heard that, that one before. <laughs> um, I've
3: gotten that one before. Parents, my grandparents. My grandparents everybody else. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, me too. It
3: happens quite often. <laughs> uh. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and um, so for some of my African, uh, my black colleagues that have been in the U.S. Um, for you know, you know, multiple generations, it was a question for them to be able to answer. Like I'm, you know, you know, fully American. My, my grandparents were born in um, the U.S. You know, their parents were born in the U.S. But for me. That was a question I hated to answer because as soon as I revealed my Nigerian heritage, then that became my identity. They're like, "Oh, okay, so you're Nigerian." I'm not really fully appreciating that I identify as a Nigerian American, where my predominant identity um, is as an American citizen, and I, I still respect my cultural roots, but not being able to tease out um, the the special context um, that you know people f- uh, from my background, first generation Americans have. Um, as being um, Americans, but also having um, connections in, in other places, and so that was something that was very challenging um, in in China, um, and I think in some ways has informed um, uh, my the way that I navigate even in the U.S. and the China space.
1: Oh, for sure, Leland, and and over to you. Also, some similarities with Mark. Uh, talk about your own experience of uh, coming up as an aspiring student of China and having you know, and we'll move on to experiences in China more fully after this. But talk about that, you know, your your studies as well.
2: Absolutely. I agree 100%. I mean, my family comes from Panama. And so my introduction to Chinese studies was actually through the prism of China's increasing influence in Latin America, specifically the Chinese using the Panama Canal and the uh, increase of Chinese migrants sort of working on projects within uh, Panama But when I was living in China and someone would ask, yeah, yeah, you're actually American? Uh, No, where are your family really from? And I would say Panama. (laughs) Oh, so you're not really American, right? I I also remember when I was studying in China, uh, I had visited Shanghai and specifically the Yu Garden. And it was crowded with people. It was a sunny day. And of course, there was these two uh, Chinese women who had umbrellas and uh, they were right in front of me, and one secretly said to the other, oh man, it's a good thing we have these umbrellas, because otherwise I wouldn't shy hate. Uh, <laughs> and I then uh, tapped her on the shoulder, and I said, you know what, being this black isn't that bad. <laughs> and they were just like, oh my God, oh my God, you can understand, right? So it, it goes back to sort of what Keisha was saying in terms of um, you know, low expectation. I, I think that over the years, I don't want to say all Chinese people, but I think uh, for the most part, Chinese people have become accustomed to seeing white males speaking great Chinese, but they are extremely, you know, overly surprised when they see a black person or a person of color uh, speaking fluent Chinese.
1: Right, right, right. And
2: so it, it I think it just shows, again, just the the lack of um, representation of people of color in the space.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's let's yeah. let's talk about you know the experience of being a black China specialist, not just a, a black China specialist, but really any black person in China. Because look, let's face it, everyone experiences racism there. I've never mm-hmm. met a black person who's been who's lived in China who doesn't have stories about the sorts of racism. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's you know sometimes it's I mean I don't want to call it innocuous, but I mean it's it's you know microaggression sorts. But sometimes it's quite overt. I, I mean, while I was there, I mean, in the late 1980s, in the winter of 88 uh, into 89, for example, I mean, it broke out into something really violent and really nasty. I mean, there were these a- anti African protests that spread, mm. uh, I guess, starting in Nanjing and Hangzhou to other cities in China, including Beijing. Uh, one often still hears people, uh, not just Chinese people themselves, but others, defending the the sort of racism that you encounter. And and maybe this was defensible really early on in China's reform and opening period, but they were saying that it was sort of a less malevolent form of racism, that it's just based on plain ignorance, the lack of exposure either in media representations or in real life, more importantly. Uh, And it takes the form of the kind of, hey, can I touch your hair Mm kind of racism, right? Or Uh,
2: the other other excuse... um I, I hear often is, oh well, you know, the whole idea of racism is like a Western <laughs> viewpoint that's sort of imposed, yeah, right? Yeah. We never yeah. had racism in Imposition so. of Western. Right.
3: <laughs> and <laughs> and I think for me, my answer to that is that um and especially in academic spaces mm-hmm. because we're very good at semantics we're very good at that we, we, we split fine hairs um, <laughs> and I, I use the the idea of networks of difference where it allows for me not to impose western ideas of say um ideas about identity and race and ethnic studies onto China where you have this kind of um uncomfortable overlapping where it doesn't address all the issues but The networks of difference is a broad umbrella term that allows me to kind of address colonial legacies, but also kind of specifics in places in Asia. So thinking about, say, um, ethno-nationalism. Uh in places like say Korea or Japan or thinking about the uses of like language about blood and kinship that happens in say many places in Asia as well so it allows me to think about this kind of larger conversation where we have to address the Western scholarship because if you have someone who's African American going to places in China, Japan, and Korea that is their basis for understanding how they've been socialized but also what is the ways in which it happens in places in China and so this idea of difference and identity is useful because it gets to the idea of like you're making Distinctions and you're making separations, whether it's you know through blood, it's through Tehan chauvinism in China, whatever the difference is, there's some kind of distinction being made. You're making some kind of value about how someone looks, so they're making some assumptions and you're placing some kind of hierarchy about what's better, what's less than, all these different distinctions that are being made as well. So the idea of thinking about through it, where it's not um, less benevolent or it's, it's not it's, it's not less than because they don't have the same legacy of slavery, but there is a still consequence of how that happens, how it's meted out onto Black bodies or different people who navigate those spaces. The consequences are still very real. And so it gets to the way of kind of talking about it and talking through it in both the kind of local, the national, and even kind of the transnational conversations, mm-hmm. but also in some ways, you know, addressing how it is real for those who experience and I think for me that became a part of what I wanted to do because a lot of times folks will say, oh, well, that's just because you're American. I'm not walking around with a passport <laughs> taped to my forehead. <laughs> they don't know I'm American. I, and as Mark and Leland have said, have to adjust it for my Americanness. So when I say something happens, it's not because I'm American. It's not because it's anti-foreign. There is something else happening here. And I think one of the, the great um, new areas of scholarship that's really getting prominence in this moment is a discussion of kind of anti-blackness as global. Mm. Why we in some ways devaluing black bodies in certain ways and how this is happening in Discourses within places in the Asia that have been happening historically is not new, and so I think kind of getting into those questions and get into those discussions is useful to kind of deal with um, some of the limitations of Afro-Asian kind of collaborations, but also those legacies that you mentioned about the '80s and, and kind of the, the 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 protests that were happening were you know, very anti-black and very anti-African mm-hmm. as well.
2: And I would say there are you know three recent. Um, situations where that conversation really came to the fore in China, right? I mean, we all remember the, the 2016 controversial uh, laundry detergent mm. commercial. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. My, the goodness, oh. Sure. my goodness. Just for anyone who doesn't
1: remember. So there was this laundry commercial where, you know, this it's – it's just insane. So, like, uh, this black guy, this woman, this, like, cute Asian woman takes this black guy who's apparently dirty – and puts him in this laundry machine and washes him with the, her washing powder. And he comes out like this fair-skinned, you know, K-pop looking, you know, little, you know, Right, kind of, right, right, you know.
2: right, right. Or, uh, or in 2018, you know, I was in China studying during the 2016 uh, commercial. And then also 2018 during the Chun when uh, mm. they had oh, yeah. people dressed up in sort of blackface and oh, African garb and you whatnot, saw
3: that on TV. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but but again, like you know, there was this uh, defense saying, mm-hmm. "No, th- these are we don't have a construct of, of racism against black people. That is a Western construct." And yes. but it, but if that's the case, then why why was there a commercial like that to begin with, right? Why yeah. was there such yeah. a controversy with the Chunwan?
1: The Chunwan, just for, for people who don't know, is is the Spring Festival Gala. I'm Correct, sure yeah, most yeah. of our audience knows that, but I've been chided recently about using Chinese phrases and not explaining them, so I'm very conscious <laughs> oh, of this.
3: Oh, I, I love what you're doing. You're doing what they call on the, um, the Cold Switch Park, and we're doing the the, uh, the exponential uh, comma almost. To put that the exponential, <laughs> the expo- you had to explain comma, I love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know... Are there instances, though, where you get cut some slack? I mean, say where, for example, your Chinese interlocutors will maybe speak to you as somebody who they assume, correctly or incorrectly, has that shared experience of being on the receiving end of racism, of of on the receiving end of imperial or colonial thinking, uh, because you're black. So, in other words, mm-hmm. they, they they treat you sort of. Uh, with this implicit assumption of allyship?
3: Um, I don't have an experience myself, but I will say there's a historical example I love to include in many of my uh, presentations and I love to teach with my students. So um, Buck Clayton was a uh, a musician and he had a band called uh, The Harlem Gentlemen. So Buck Clayton... All gentlemen, they went to China and they were traveling in the late 1920s or 1930s in Shanghai primarily. Um, and there were other places, but they were going to Shanghai to perform jazz. And there was an incident where um some performance. There were American and I think a few Russian sailors. And this has been documented in a few other sources. But where, you know, the ideas of, of racism were kind of imported to China through these uh, uh, American sailors and kind of some of these Russians who were there as well. And they got into a street brawl. And what was happening is that in the street brawl, the Chinese individuals who happened to be in that space at the time were surrounding them and cheering for Buck Clayton, who's a black man, and his bandmates, black, other black men, to beat up the, the white uh, Navy sailor, the Navy uh, navy shipmen, and 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 the, the Russian sailors, and the conversation that happened that moment was that if you look at texts like uh, Langston Hughes, I wander as I wander, he was talking about his time in China 1920s, 1930s, there was very much this kind of, um, in certain spaces, there was very much this kind of anti-China, um, and kind of very anti-Chinese racism that was happening happening in shanghai through organizations like the ymca where they had like two separate spaces they had a ymca for this group and a ymca for that group and they were making distinctions in those ways as well and so in many cases they sound allyship in this particular moment because they too in some ways um, plagued by kind of this kind of colonial legacy and kind of this importation that was happening in a port city that was kind of still really in the, the legacy of the open wars but how what was happening as a result of this kind of, you know, continual frustration um, on multiple levels that led to them kind of in some way seeking allyship in this particular um, fight. It's not some advocate violence. I don't advocate violence. But in this moment, it was one of those points where it is what it is and this is what happens. And you saw this kind of moment of, of allyship. And I think that you have those pockets and I think. Um, one of the kind of really good examples is something that uh, David Wartime and a piece that I was able to contribute to in Politico a few weeks ago was that there are pockets of this allyship that happens in the current climate where you have students who say have studied abroad or who are, you know, versed in certain uh, kind of, uh, you know, language or rhetoric where they are trying to, in some ways, bring that back or trying to incorporate that into the different movements now. And so I think there is happening in pockets, but I don't know how much is happening on the larger kind of, you know, global scale. But I I do know that it's happened in certain spaces, but that example I love to teach it because it gets to this idea of like it's not new. There are legacies there, but it's also yeah. just interesting to talk about people fighting in the streets. I, I
1: don't. Well, know. I, I I am an advocate <laughs> of violence, but Keisha, I got I got I gotta ask. I know that story from somewhere. I've read it somewhere, and I can't yeah. put my.
3: It might be either. Uh, is I it know, in Wil-
1: uh, Isabel Wilkerson? Is it in?
3: No, so I, I'm not. It is what we're concerned about. Warmth of the Sun. She has a really good research about the the Great Migration. It might be yeah, an th- Andrew. Um, what's his last name? I can't think. Here it's a really great book about Shanghai and the and the institutions that kind of uh, the kind of hide of it. He talks about Andrew. I can't think his last name, uh, but he's like the palindrome, all these other kind of spaces. But it's also in kind of these kind of other stories about you know, the, the the, the, yeah. Also Andrew Jones. He wrote about in Yellow Music as well. I okay. Heard about that too.
1: Okay. Yeah. Andrew yeah, and I go yeah, way back. Yeah. I know. I know there's another
3: know. Andrew who wrote about too. I can't think of his last name. I can see his book is blue. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, but there's other. <laughs> we'll find it. I, I, yeah.
0: So I think um, just uh, following up on this topic, yeah. Um, I think it's really relevant for the conversation we're having um, in the U.S. Uh, about Black Lives Matter. Um, I was in China from 2012 until 2015. So when Black Lives Matter first became a, a movement, um, I was experiencing it largely uh, just uh, in China and uh, through the my television screen and the Internet. Um, and I realized that part of the challenges that I faced um, with some of my Chinese colleagues is that it was apparent that they had an understanding of black history, largely through a lens um, of their engagement um, with African immigrants or their conception of African immigrants. Um, the Chinese colleagues that I was working with had very little context for African-American history, or at least a history that right. situates blackness in a American context. Um, and I say that is because um, I found that some of the, uncharitable takes of the movement sort of stem from the stereotypes of Africans in Guangzhou or Beijing. Um, and it was very challenging for me at, at times to talk about race in a way that um, my colleagues would acknowledge that that distinct and separate history. Um, and so I I think there is a growing understanding that there is you know a black diaspora that is really rich um and is informed by a lot of many factors. Um, but I think there is a tendency sometimes to see blackness through a, a lens that is not really multidimensional, and that could really hurt um, this understanding of um, sort of the colonial legacy of anti-blackness.
1: For sure, I mean, I I've often thought about this about that there is that shared experience, especially a lot of uh, a lot of younger people who understand the black experience in America better to see certain parallels between. Uh, what's happening between the US and China right now, as sort of this spasm of uh, a, a US that's accustomed to, you know, sort of global hegemony and privilege, now having that privilege challenged and acting out in really, frankly, racist ways toward China, seeing parallels between that and what's happening in America, where, you know, uh, where. White people accustomed to their own privilege of race are now being openly challenged by movements like BLM and acting out also in in really racist ways. I I feel like there's a really strong parallel there that needs to be explored. Uh, maybe I'll I'll write something on that one day. But
2: well, that's why I think Keisha's work is so fascinating, right? Showing how you know W.E.B. the boys and even members of the Black Panthers. Um, you know, visited Beijing, right? Keisha, yeah. you reminded me that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' wife, uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois, correct? Yeah,
3: his second wife. She, Absolutely, yeah. Right, right.
2: That that she died in Beijing and was laid in in wake there, right?
1: Oh, yeah. really? Wow.
3: In state, yeah. In state. Well.
1: So so guys, in in the middle of this decade, I started noticing like a a growing intensity in the racist attitudes that were being expressed online in China toward Africans, especially people living in Guangzhou. Uh, It was, you know, and, and, you know, generally toward Africans in China. It it started carrying more and more of the hallmarks of what I would describe as, you know, American alt-right discourse Mm. on race, which I found to be really frightening. Uh, It kept a lot of the existing tropes that, invariably come up in any online conversation, uh, about, uh, black people in China, you know, the sexualization and the stereotypes about hy- hyperphysicality and, and all that. But more and more, I was finding these things that were cribbed directly from like American alt-right discourse on race. Did you guys notice that too? And what, what, what did you, what did you make of, of, of that happening?
0: Uh, that, that's, that's something I've, I've noticed for, um, ever since my first introduction to China, um, I saw sort of some entrenched attitudes where I was f- frankly shocked that, um, they had these associations given their very limited interactions with black people. Um, and I, I think one thing I also want to point to is, um, very recently when some of these Chinese officials started calling out our current administration's response to, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests or even our ongoing conversation on racial justice, um, I felt that there was a complete lack of acknowledgement of some of the anti-Black racism that is very prominent um, on online communities, um, especially um, um, on, on social media. Um, many Black people that I've known spent time in China, um, especially you know, uh, the Africans that I know who spent time in China, um, have their own complicated history navigating these spaces. I felt that I was sort of um, shielded in some ways because I had an American passport. I had a lot of American colleagues as well, so um, I would sometimes be surrounded by white people that were able to um, shield some of the um, the most vile um, sort of behavior. But um, that's something that I I especially have noticed um, ever since I first set foot in China. yeah
3: yeah Yeah. and i think um it's not new and as i mentioned before like if you look at um a text that comes from like the 1960s emmanuel heavy's book about being an african student in china he mentions it back in 1963 where he's discussing his own kind of personal um you know navigation spaces and let's be clear like china courted African nations, they wanted to have engagement. You have Joe and Enlai, who's working as the foreign affairs minister, who's going on African safaris. So they wanted to have an engagement with African nations, but then once it happened, what does that relationship look like? And I don't think that was really thought through and then once it happened, you have these kind of discussions about what place does each nation, you know, have what the roles each nation are we working together in terms of collaboration, is one in the other. And those conversations never really happen in terms of and so now you have this idea of where, you know, they look at it in terms of development in certain ways that leads to kind of this understanding of, of one being quote unquote better than the other in some weird and really kind of complicated ways. And so I think for me in thinking through this, um China-Africa uh, development and kind of paradigm, one of the things I'm, I'm frustrated with is one that most of the scholarship is based on economic or political spaces. They're not talking about the cultural, or the social aspects of what happens mm. when uh. you have different communities in different places and what happens in those spaces, either in China or in those African nations where there is tensions or there's not, you know, or they have collaboration between the communities. What has happened in those communities? Where is the discussion about those particular interactions? And then two, I think one of the things that I'm I'm thinking through about a a future project, because, you know, I think it's interesting is that uh, one of the things that's coming out is that there's more, um, you know, there's encouragement of studying Chinese in in these African nations that have um, kind of connection or some ties to China. But also as these young men are going to these different nations, you know, they're also mixing with the local women. And so what happens when these children who have legitimate claims to Chinese citizenship, the way it's set up today, once to actually get citizenship 18 years from now. And they want actually claim those benefits of citizenship because of the way in which you think about, you know, Chinese and, and, and think about Chinese citizenship and blood and this idea about ancestry. So I think these conversations are not going to go away anytime soon. I think they're going to have to deal with some of this kind of anti-Blackness that is circulating these spaces and these kind of stereotypes is happening. Because in many cases, what I've had in terms of conversations, when someone realizes that I'm American and not African, how they think about Africa, then you kind of hear those kind of Ideas come out, a lot of the ideas are defaults, and their default ideas are negative. Right. And so it's like, well, what happens when those individuals are now seen as your fellow Chinese citizens? And how are you going to deal with that? incoming in the future prospects so I think there is a lot of work to to be done in this area and I think the it has been on different levels whether it's coming from the top down through the you north know, central government or you know from the bottom up through kind of local individuals or NGOs at the bottom level, it's going to have to be kind of a collaborative effort because there is a lot that's happening in the academic spaces where they have more institutes and more institutions and programs being built to discuss china africa but it's not happening in the social cultural spaces and there's going to have to be something happening on all these different levels so where you have you know someone saying hey a commercial about putting a black man in the washing machine he's coming out a certain way is not okay even if your model was a french commercial that is okay but the way you did it was not okay either
1: right italian
2: and the
3: problem i think is also is that you know and think about advertising it's a long history in china you think about the 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 the, the blacky or the darky toothpaste and mm-hmm. how that is gone from not oh, just china geez. but to right. other places there are other advertisements as well and so you know regards to the origin whether it was not based in a kind of a racist origin that still has a resonance that now in some ways we can kind of know we can do better and so there's a lot that that needs to be done in those spaces to really interrogate all these ways in which these messages are disseminated to multiple levels <laughs>
1: just just in the last hour we've enumerated like you know 80 different topics that are just absolutely calling out for really you know serious exploration uh and so obviously there's a huge need for uh, to train a cadre of people who are interested in how do we do that how do we you know look back in in the in, when I was you know in college I, I looked at all the kids who were fascinated with Japan, who you know fixated on Japan. There was, you know, there was popular culture that could get get its hooks into them. That's really kind of missing when it comes to China. It's not. It's like uh, you know, the the damn monkey king is not enough to sustain a whole industry. <laughs> right? Although I, I love mean,
2: me some Sun Wukong.
1: Okay, well, <laughs> wukong, yeah. right. Right. but but I tell you though, I mean, how how do we how how do we get uh, how do we cultivate more interest in China from young black people and other people of color who are under underrepresented, like Latinas and Latinos? What, uh, what, what needs to be done?
2: Well, I think, I, I think, for example, again, through the Black China Caucus, through Nabia, uh, we can just do more outreach to historical black colleges and universities. That's a great um, idea. To high schools in which they already have uh, sort of maybe Asian languages uh, in order to encourage uh, people of color, students of color from an early age to consider a career in um, Asian affairs, international affairs. Um, I can talk from my perch uh, as a foreign service officer. Just on July 31st, a fellow foreign service officer uh, Annika Bentecourt, she uh, just published an article in the Brookings Institute about diversity or lack thereof in the State Department, right? Mm. And so mm-hmm. when you look at the Latinx and um, black populations in the United States, I mean, that's 18% and 13% respectively, but they only make up 7% of the Foreign Service, right? And, right. and out of the 189 ambassadors serving abroad. Only three are black and only oh, four God. are Hispanic, right? Right. So, That's because
1: they were all appointed by the goddamn Trump administration.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the good news is I think the state is um, taking concerted efforts to try to rectify that, right? I mean, there are yeah. two programs. One is called the Thomas R. Pickering Program, right? Uh, of which I'm an alum, and the other one is the Wrangle Program. So uh, Pickering out of after the,
1: Charlie Wrangle.
2: Uh, yeah, so after Charlie Rangel, the uh, New York congressman, and then after Thomas Pickering, the you know, famous ambassador. Of course. Um, and it provides mentorship, training for uh, students of color. It covers their graduate school costs if they decide to study uh, international relations. Uh, and it provides them internships, right? So uh, when I was in graduate school at the Tufts Fletcher School, um, they provided an uh, internship for me to Um, work on the China desk in D.C., and then to work at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, right? So it's through programs like that that can really inspire young people of color to consider learning Mandarin, consider learning Japanese, Korean... Um, consider being an expert in the Asia space.
1: Yeah, none, none of the three of you actually went to an HBC. I would love to know what the state of Asian studies is at Howard and all of the major, you know, the big name HBCs. I, I wonder if there's some literature out there on that. That'd be really fascinating.
3: Um, so I guess I'm the, the academic in the group, so I'll speak to that. Um, so I will say that um, the Minority Serving uh, Institute um, that it, well, used to be at UPenn is now at Rutgers, um, does a lot of data about um, different aspects of um, what minority serve institutions are doing in terms of not just HBCUs, but also Hispanic serving institutions, as well as Asian Asian studies, uh, Asian, Asian Pacific other institutions, as well as native indigenous schools as well. And so they have that on all institutions that are MSIs, whatever that umbrella is. Um, as for me, I know I did not go to HBCU, so I, I'm going to tell my age. I applied to college in 2002 at the time. As a black woman, I had... One of two options, either go to Morehouse, which is not allowed because there's a male institution, or go to Agnes Scott, which was the only school in Georgia that also had a really good program. At Mm. the time, Spelman had a young program, but it was Japanese-focused that later became more Mm China-focused. And so for me and my family, all of my family went to HBCUs. I was Mm -hmm. the only one in my immediate family, out of my siblings my parents, to go to a white school. And I think for me... Especially my dad, he had problems with that. He was very much like, you know, it was about protection for him. It was like, I know, you know, he went to the military right out of high school in the, in the late 1960s. He had been in institutions where it, what it means to be black in, a, in certain spaces and stuff. So for him, it was about protection. You know, I know what it means to be in those spaces. And for you, I want you to go to HBCU first to kind of get that incubation and get that foundation, and then go off to the other world. But I was like, I can't do that because what I want to study is not in those spaces that you want me to go to. And I I kid you not, my mom can attest to this. We had like arguments, drag out, you know, (laughs) me running off upstairs crying. You know, it was very heated for us. But I think one of the great things is that that's also part of why I. My first choice for a academic position was at an HBCU. I really was seeking, if you ask any of my colleagues, my, my professors at, at USC, that was in my admission essay. I want to work at HBCU. And so when the position at Tennessee State came available for me during my uh, application year, I even was too scared to apply. That sounds crazy because it sounded too perfect. <laughs> I was like, this is what I want to do. I'm so scared if I don't get it. What happens? And how I'm going to be devastated. I'm going to be on my mom's couch for two years. depressed. <laughs> so for me, it was very much where this was, uh, for me, a-, a choice to come to an HBCU. And I think for me, there is... A need And there is an interest, but it's also a, uh, an understanding that we also need to know, you know, where is funding because, you know, unfortunately for most HBCUs, we're underfunded. I work at Tennessee State University, which is a state school. It's a land grant institution. It's also an HBCU. And unfortunately, you know, our, our you know, our other, you know, partner, a, a land grant school is UT, So look at UT and TSU, there are two different schools. And the same thing happens in terms of other states in the Southeast, especially where there's something called the Morrill Act. And they have two separate acts. Initially, it was to establish land-grant schools. And because the land-grant schools post the Civil War were not admitting black students, they had to make a choice, either admit black students or set up a separate institution. And that's why you have, you know, two land-grant schools in most places in the Southeast. Look at Georgia. They have two schools, Florida, two schools, Alabama, the same thing. And so I think for us, it's a matter of, it's not a matter of interest. Or talent. I've had students who have come to me who are like I do this, this, and this. I have shared textbooks with students. We have conversations. But it's a matter of having the the space and the funding. And so I'm grateful to say that right now um, through the a consultancy through Asian Network, um, my colleagues and I, we have a committee and we're actually building an Asian Studies presence and even trying to build an undergrad certificate. And hopefully, to be a minor at Tennessee State, we're trying to bring languages to the campus as well. So, it's not a matter of interest. It's a matter of having the resources and having, you know, someone in some way to kind of help us kind of really galvanize it in a way that we have external sources. Because if you have a source between a program or a dorm, the necessity goes to, say, the dorm. And so, it's, it's having those conversations and not just at HBCUs, but other minority institutions where it's it's not about talent interest. It's about you know we need sometimes an external do uh, a dose of funding or external dose of kind of support that really helps our students and encourages our students in ways it kind of builds upon the platform that we've given them to really encourage them to go the extra mile so it's it's there it's just a matter of um not just here but other institutions where you have low numbers of Asian study students I was the only one in my little program at Notre Dame and so it's like you know even in those different you know these predominantly white institutions there also is a low number why does it happen? I think, that you know, the research that uh, Mark and I are doing is important to kind of identify those issues in a pipeline, even before college, getting to high school and thinking about what's happening. So,
1: so, so Mark, in, in your own peer cohort and, and, you know, yourself as well, what got it tooks into you from China? I mean, how did you get so interested in China?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I liked how you sort of started with the Japan um, sort of uh, reference, because I do think that, you know, Japan has made very intentional steps, um, to use its, you know, his art and its entertainment inter- industry to promote culture. And, um, I think has largely worked. Um, but for, for right. my own, um, interest in China, it was purely, um, accidental. Um, I really decided that I wanted to, after Duke, uh, spend, um, two years doing a teaching fellowship with these for China. Um, I really wanted mm. to, um, experience China, um, because of, uh, understanding Chinese influence in Nigeria. has always been something that has been um, a, you know, a topic of conversation in my household. And I thought that that was a time for me to, um, to try new things and really spread my wings. Um, and so I, I think for mm. me, it's really a problem of access and mentorship. So I went to, um, I'm from Georgia, so I went to a public high school that consistently ranks as one of the top three high schools in the state. We didn't have um, uh, Chinese offered as a language um, that you could take. The only Asian language was Japanese. Um, so the only time that I really had the ability to interface with, you know, Chinese culture or politics was college, um, and I didn't do it then. I studied Spanish, and my my concentration was public policy. Um, so being um, in China for three years was my main exposure and. The reason why I developed the person I am today, but it was a mentorship piece that um, I was able to participate in once I got back. Um, I really wanted to uh, focus right. on a career, and I found people that were dedicated and invested in my trajectory that were, you know, trying to show me the options of how I could interface with China as a career. Um, and
1: yeah, you got, you you got, as it were, the big break, yes, right? yeah, I
0: like that. <laughs> um, and um. <laughs> I, I think it's important to understand that component because everything that I've done in the China space, I, I've been focusing on, you know, Chinese investment abroad, focused on Belt and Road Initiative. Um, those, um, happened because I had someone who was telling me you should look into this or I joined a team that was focused on that. Um, so it was a combination of expectation setting, um, where I feel like we need to be able to find the pipeline where that's not happening, give people the, the knowledge and the access to really engage and have exposure to China and really um, work with people that are impressionable and let them know that this is a space for them if they choose it to be. Because um, I think for me, I happened to be in the China space um, when I was older, but it was it was um, framed and it was um, managed by the people around me that served as really great guides and mentors in that process. Yeah, that's just fantastic and you know th- what you guys are putting out into the world now uh not
1: only Nabia's guide but also the, the bcc of course the, the bcc list uh and the other resources we'll have links to all of that on the, the, the show page for for the, this program uh wow what i could go on for another hour with you three but but i don't think i'm allowed to so i'm gonna have to let's 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 um Put, leave it at that and, and welcome you all back onto the show at a later date. But let's move on to recommendations. First, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca or with the other shows in the network, the very best way that you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter access. This thing is chock full of really, really good reads on China delivered to your inbox every weekday. So sign up and spread the word. Okay, on to recommendations. Keisha, you're up first. What, what do you have for? Us this week
3: <laughs> i gotta start first oh, that's pressure um so i think i have um i think about one of my first recommendations i think i mentioned it earlier um well maybe i kind of alluded to earlier Was that recently the association for asian studies did a podcast uh not a podcast but i did a uh a, a, a panel on Black Lives Matter and Asian Studies. And I think it was myself. I was somehow the only China person. So that was heavy, heavy to hold down.
1: Yeah, and yeah, three
3: yeah. Uh, Japanese specialists. Um, but it was a really great panel because we talked about the issue of, you know, representation, all this conversation that we had today in a, in a multiple spaces. And so I think we, that's a good place to look at. And I can send you the link to that. But it's about Black Lives Matter and Asian studies and that's the podcast and an episode is available and they have a transcript as well as additional resources linked to that as well And so I think that's one of my first um recommendations um I think my other one My other kind of uh, favorite podcast is, uh, well, one of my favorites, I have two, but the other one is uh, Cold Switch. I think it's a really good space because they're dealing with some really good conversations right now, and not just in terms of, uh, uh, you know, thinking about black engagement in Asia, but also in uh, black engagement, Asian-Americans in the U.S., and they've had some really good conversations about, you know, how to think about what's happening now, you know, engagement in the U.S., domestic politics as well, and so...
1: That's a great podcast. Anything
3: Cold Switch does, I'm always there for it, so those are my kind of two, you know, that's so what I, I listen to. So again, I, I, I do race studies, so I've done about race all the time. So I guess I never get away from my work. But <laughs> that's those are my two recommendations, absolutely.
1: All right. Excellent. All right. Let's move on to Mark. What you got for us?
0: Um, I just wanted to um, say that Keisha's recommendations are great. Um, definitely check out her um, her um, conversation because she's a person that every time I talk to her, it could be two minutes, it could be an hour. I'm always taking notes. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um she speaks gems. Um
3: Oh, thank you.
0: <laughs> but the recommendation that I have um is it's pretty amazing that I found it. So um there's a black um China um specialist, he's a teacher. His name is Amani Kor, and he has developed um a Chinese language Black Lives Matter syllabus. It provides vocabulary and suggested discussion topics um, for how you can talk about Black Lives Matter in Chinese and really equip people with the tools to continue that conversation um, in Chinese. So I will share you um, with that is a, a Google um, spreadsheet that has those terms and those discussion topics. But it's a really great resource that I think is very timely at the moment.
1: Oh, that's, that's fantastic. I'll definitely want to check that out it because I have been in I don't know how many conversations that I've, well, I've seen or participated in and just trying to figure out how the hell to say Black Lives Matter in Chinese. I mean, like the, what's the, the the best way to really make that come across? Leland, what do you have for us?
2: Well, this isn't a new book or a new resource, but um, I just finished The Great Influenza by John M. Barry. Um, and of course, I wish that a lot of leaders had uh, read that book before COVID-19 came. I feel like we would have <laughs> I'll handle this a little bit better. Uh.
1: Okay, yeah, the great influence. I, I unfortunately have another COVID-related <laughs> recommendation for myself, which is I, he's just I think one of the best people writing on it. The Ed Young, Y O N G. Uh, he's got the cover story of the Atlantic this issue. Uh, it's called his piece is called "How the Pandemic Defeated mm. America," which is just painful and embarrassing and crazy making but it's about all the missteps that not just the Trump administration but also the American people have made I mean it's an indictment of a lot of you know elements of of our own own Mm -hmm. culture our own politics Uh, it's quite chilling but uh, very much worth reading Ed Young uh, how the pandemic defeated America on that happy note (laughs) hey you guys thank you so much (laughs) What, what, what a pleasure to have you all on
3: Thank you so much for having us. I, I do appreciate being a part of this, this conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for this uh, opportunity. Absolutely. Thank,
2: thank it you. It was great. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Leland, great to have you back. And Mark, I, I look forward to having all three of you back on the show again in, in the future. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys.
3: Absolutely. Let me know when I'm ready to go. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I had to do a lot of work today. I was the only female, so I had to do a lot of work. But here we go. Let's have mixed it up a little bit next time. Oh, well, we love Thank you.
1: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.